This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello and welcome. I'm Greg Treverton, the director of Rand Center for Global Risk and Security. It's my distinct pleasure tonight to introduce our panelists for this policy forum on privacy versus security. Our moderator will be Henry Willis, who's the director of the RAND Homeland Security and Defense Center and also a professor at the Pardee RAND Graduate School. He applies risk analysis to resource allocation and risk management decisions across a range of issues from health to homeland security, and he recently testified before Congress on the homeland security dimension. Rafael George Garcia is the special agent in charge of the Intelligence Division of the FBI's Los Angeles Field Office. After an Army career of a dozen years, Mr. Garcia has worked in various capacities for the Bureau since 1995, focusing on intelligence, counterterrorism, and weapons of mass destruction. Those assignments have taken him to FBI headquarters and to be the FBI's deputy on-scene commander in Iraq. A former ambassador of the United States, Cameron Munter, is a professor of international relations at Pomona College. A retired career diplomat, Ambassador Munter served as America's ambassador to Pakistan from 2010 to 2012, leading the embassy through what was a pretty stormy period in U.S.-Pakistani relations, including the capture of Osama bin Laden. Before Pakistan, Ambassador Munter was in Baghdad and was charged with planning for the drawdown of U.S. troops. His earlier positions include ambassador to Serbia and deputy chief of mission in the Czech Republic and Poland. Last but not least, Peter Bibbring is a senior staff attorney at the ACLU Southern California office. At the ACLU, he has won cases against the LAPD over searching and detaining people on Skid Row and against the city of Moreno Valley over raiding African-American barbershops without a warrant. Please join me in giving a hearty welcome to our distinguished panel. Thank you, Greg. So we're here tonight to talk about security and privacy. And the events this year have put these two issues into the front of our policy agenda. In April, the bombings of the Boston Marathon grabbed our nation's attention, and it reminded us that terrorism is still an existential threat that seemingly could happen anywhere. About a month later, Edward Snowden began releasing revelations about massive surveillance that our government was doing. And this kicked off a healthy public debate about how we balance privacy and security. And as you heard from Greg, it's our mission at RAND to try to improve the quality of public policy and decision making. And so this is an important discussion to be had, and it's why we brought together this panel of people who have very different views. And while everyone here has deep expertise and experience with parts of it, and we're hoping to have a very open discussion about it, there will be some things that they will be unable to, questions they'll be unable to answer and, and uh, just because of the situations. But we're going to try to guide the discussion over a few topics today. We're going to start with trying to understand what works in intelligence and security and why do we feel we need to put measures in place. We're then going to turn to what are the increased risks of mass collection of information on the public and finally, turn to what, is the, what, do, what are the implications of this on how we implement foreign policy? 
And so with that sort of as an overarching of where the topics I'd like to see us cover, I'm going to start with the first question on the threat we face and why we need feel we need security. If there are no benefits of this, then we wouldn't even be having this discussion. So with that, George, I'd like to turn to you. How has the threat of terrorism changed over the past decade? And how have our security and domestic counterterrorism efforts adapted? Well, it's changed, uh, Henry, in, a, I think, uh, a, rel a few relatively significant ways. Uh, first, it is a far more diffused threat uh, than it was uh, about 10 to 15 years ago. Uh, it's uh, not necessarily uh, aligned uh, by group, but perhaps uh, principally by ide ideology and other uh, uh, driving factors, uh, which may mean uh, also be uh, complaints about how perhaps we're conducting ourselves in their view. Uh, secondly, um, the threat uh, seems to uh, progress uh, at times very rapidly in what may appear to be a localized threat today perhaps in some obscure part of the world, uh, could in fact be on our doorstep tomorrow. Uh, and then lastly, uh, and as significantly, uh, they don't necessarily uh, appear, based on their actions, uh, and recent actions are indicators of that, uh, that necessarily big and complex attacks are necessarily their goal or their aim, at least in, in their view, to attempt to accomplish their objectives. So relatively small in comparison attacks uh, that are relatively simple uh, to put together and execute uh, seem to be uh, a preference. And of course, uh, they have the same tools that we all have uh, to communicate in a worldwide capacity through the internet and other social media, which makes uh, not only communicating plans and intentions uh, relatively easy, uh, but also to gain support, uh, be it moral, but perhaps even material. So these are some of the challenges we think we're responding to. What are we doing, uh, maybe Cameron, maybe you could well, just Also to jump in on that, an element that I think George, George uh, um, mentioned, but I would, would emphasize from the point of view of someone who has spent most of the recent years, in fact, the last 10 years out of the United States, this is not something Americans can or will or, or seek to serve, uh, to, to deal with on their own. This is going to take some sort of cooperation with foreigners, those who are friendly to us, and understanding of those foreign elements who are not friendly to us. So that kind of understanding of intelligence in the sense of having a deeper understanding of what can be done is not just an American task. And I think we make a, a, a big mistake if we see it as only ours. So, so from a, a security perspective responding to that, what type of steps is it important for us to be able to take? George? Well, I think uh, certainly from uh, my organization's perspective, uh, we have to on a daily basis uh, show due diligence uh, that uh, we don't dismiss uh, even uh, what we may uh, on the surface be uh, the smallest uh, allegation, but to do that always within the construct that's provided to us uh, through Congress and the laws obviously stemming from our Constitution to ensure that while we are doing that due diligence in our work to make sure that uh, we leave no stone unturned, uh, that we do that in balance with the responsibility that we also have as an organization to protect uh, the civil liberties of Americans as well as their privacy. And in fact, that constraining aspect of our work uh, is present every day because even with the authority vested in statute, uh, even with a predicated uh, investigation that has articulable facts uh, that can be substantiated, uh, we still must balance that uh, with a responsibility to retain civil liberties uh, and privacy. So we simply can't do anyth everything that may be available to us until we can demonstrate 
that lesser intrusive methods uh, have been ineffective or are not practical for the situation. So every day, the men and women of the FBI, agents and analysts in other work roles, uh, work towards accomplishing that mission, recognizing that they have that responsibility to balance it uh, against uh, keeping, uh, maintaining, obviously, civil liberties and privacy along the way. So let me jump in here. I, I may be jumping the gun a bit, but from an outsider's perspective, uh, looking at the law enforcement practices, not only um, federal law enforcement, the FBI, but also local law enforcement like LAPD or NYPD, what it appears to us as a civil liberties group is that law enforcement has shifted domestic law enforcement from w what I would actually call a traditional law enforcement model of finding bad guys, investigating them, seeing if um, you can find their friends and investigate them, to more of an intelligence gathering model, right, where um, there are programs put in place to, to gather, gather lots and lots of information to collect dots uh, and to connect, to collect information and connect dots, which in and of themselves might appear innocuous, but the idea is when put together might reveal some sort of crime. So that, that's whether, whether that's the NSA programs on uh, gathering metadata or looking at internet traffic or suspicious activity reporting programs in local police departments which train officers to identify um, even at times lawful activity like public photography and, and forward that to a national database. Um, there's been a shift to collecting lots and lots of data. And I think that there's a real question here as to whether that, in the first instance, is an effective model. I mean, if you look at, for example, uh, William Webster's committee report on the, the Fort Hood shootings, one of the conclusions is <coughs> that intelligence, uh, the, the analysts there missed intelligence about Nadal Hassan in part because of a relentless workload created by an explosion of, of data that they simply had to process. And so there's a question about, I mean, in proverbial terms, whether this is just adding more hay to the haystack um, and, and really an effective way to, to police. So, Peter, uh, thank you for bringing up those points. Um, you also highlighted that uh, law enforcement has a couple roles. They have the role of investigating crimes, and in today's threat environment, uh, some expectation of preventing attacks as well. And, uh, George, you mentioned that there's a cognizant effort, of try effort to try to do this within the, within the realm of protecting civil liberties, but there's a history of, of cases where some of those civil liberties have been abused, and so checks are put in place. Uh, Peter, I'd just like to ask you uh, your perspective on where those checks are effective or where you might have some concerns. Sure. Um, I mean, there are a lot of checks that have been put in place, and obviously um, uh, some of them less effective than others. I mean, I think with the, uh, the NSA programs, we're seeing a lot of checks that have proven very ineffective, and I think that's probably where I'll concentrate. I mean, traditionally, there's the Fourth Amendment sets up a warrant requirement, sets up a, a no warrants shall issue but on probable cause, so a, a requirement of individualized suspicion before private information is gathered. And the, the shift to a more uh, universal collection mechanism requires um, the bypassing of that, right? So whether that's through the, the bulk warrants that issue um, through FISA courts um, or through um, programs that gather large amounts of data outside, outside any kind of warrant. But um, that model 
seems to be an, an ineffective way of, of overseeing. So first of all, I think the, 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 the things that make it ineffective, bo uh, both the congressional oversight and the FISA court oversight, are the, the secrecy. Um, I think that one of the things that's stunning about the revelations and about the scope of the programs is um, how far they've gone without any public discussion. Um, but also in the context of, of the FISA court, we've now seen FISA judges basically saying, you know, we're not, we're not the most effective check on this. We can't tell, we can't evaluate the veracity of, of the information that's being presented us, to us in one-sided situation, um, in a one-sided proceeding where there's no adversary. We can't uh, supervise uh, what's being done with our, our orders, what, what's being acted on, because we're, we're just a court. So I think um, the secrecy and the lack of adversarial nature of, of the FISA courts is a, is a huge problem that needs to be addressed. Did you want to? No. So, uh, you know, I think that brings to the next, uh, the next part of this discussion. We've heard about the threat. We've heard about some things we think we need to do to respond to that. And sometimes I get asked the question, so are we safer for what we do? And in many ways, that's somewhat of the wrong question. The question we pose back is, what have we gained in terms of safety and, and what have we lost? Uh, and so I get turn back to Peter to start with what are, in your view, some of the risks of, of mass surveillance? Right. Uh, I mean, I think it's always difficult to articulate the value of privacy. Um, I, I will give it a shot. Um, I mean, I think there's certainly a, 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 an, a, a camp of people who think if I'm not doing anything wrong, what does it matter if my actions are being watched? Um, and I think there are a few answers to that. Um, the first is that most people, in fact, are doing something wrong. Uh, it may be <laughs> not what they think, but you know whether it's running red lights, sloppy preparation on, of your tax returns. Um, people do things. People do things wrong. And then the, the second thing is that um, government doesn't always target bad guys for or who they think are bad guys for exactly. The, the reasons that, that you might think, right? Um, Al Capone was got on tax evasion charges. In my practice w at the ACLU, uh, we do a lot of representation of people who are uh, interviewed by the FBI. Uh, we have some reason to think for national security reasons. And a lot of times we see what seems to us at least to be pretextual um, uh, uh, charges brought. So an investigation that has a national security agent on it uh, results in an immigration charge or a deportation proceeding or even a, some charge related to uh, practice of business. Um, and so just the idea that somebody, if somebody gets in their head the idea that you're doing something wrong, um, that can create a real problem. And then the last thing is that government is made up of people who are, are fallible and individuals um, can certainly abuse the power that's been given to them. And that's true of rogue actors, whether, I mean, Edward Snowden um, on some people's certainly didn't do what the government expected with secret information. Um, or, you know, abuses throughout history, right? Richard Nixon, um, or um, in Los Angeles, there was the Public Disorder Intelligence Division run by the LAPD, which compiled uh, a lot of information and, and used it for political purposes. It's often 
you, information that's collected ostensibly for law enforcement and security purposes often used on on political groups. Okay. Well, let me so if I if I could uh, just uh, uh, provide some some uh, perspective. The FBI operates uh, uh, through mandates that uh, that are codified in, in statute laws written uh, by our Congress, signed by President uh, into into law. Uh, that process has produced uh, appropriately and necessarily uh, oversight, uh, not just uh, within the executive branch of government itself and the Department of Justice, obviously within the FBI as well, uh, but also uh, with the Congress in the legislative branch and, of course, uh, through the court system in the judicial branch. And that's done very deliberately to make sure uh, that day in and day out, uh, the work that we are doing does two very important things. Make use of the laws that have been passed by our Congress that are there representing the people of the United States as duly elected officials, and in their estimation, it's what's required at that point in time. They have an expectation that we use those tools. They have an equal expectation, as does the FBI, that we balance the use of those tools with a consideration and in our first uh, core value as an organization, rigorous uh, obedience to the Constitution, that we balance those tools in a predicated investigation for which we are allowed to use those tools with the requirement and the need uh, to protect civil liberties and privacy. So just because we have the authority by law to use certain investigative techniques, we have a responsibility, frankly, a requirement to do so in a manner uh, that is least intrusive whenever possible. Sometimes, even an interview is too intrusive. Now, what do I mean by that? If we think that perhaps uh, you've been involved in wrongdoing because we have received information uh, and we can corroborate aspects of it, and we are authorized then to open an investigation, and at some point we decide perhaps we should have a talk with this individual, it may be hugely inappropriate to have a discussion with you in your workplace. Because while the interview itself is considered a relatively less intrusive investigative technique, by doing it in your workplace, we have intruded on your privacy. And keeping that knowledge and understanding of what we may have interest in, even just by our physical presence, might cause people to have concerns which they really shouldn't have. And so we take care not only to measure the actual technique used, uh, but in the manner that it might be used before we do it. And that oversight is provided within the organization by the leadership as well as the individuals that are uh, responsible for conducting those investigations and then through very deliberate mechanisms both within the organization and outside. That happens as a matter of practice uh, every day. Um, I, mean, I think some of this discussion highlights a couple of the, or leads to some of the consequences I've heard people talk about. That is, maybe because of this there might be intimidation that might lead to First Amendment type concerns or uh, possibility of unwarranted uh, search. Uh, Peter, maybe can you expand on, on the way people have tried to frame up whether or not these more constitutional concerns are at risk? Right. Um, but, I mean, that is certainly a, a concern. And, and, you know, we have seen that, right? This goes back to the point I was making earlier about um, surveillance often being targeted against political groups, whether it's uh, the surveillance of Martin Luther King in the 60s by the FBI or the revelations just within the last week or two that NYPD had um, placed its own undercover agents inside the uh, 
Occupy Sandy relief efforts. Um, and that, I think, has, has a real potential to chill people's political activity, people um, who th may want to go out and participate in, in Occupy Sandy in a relief effort, or, or the original Occupy movement in a political movement may be chilled from doing so if they think that their participation will be noted and that that may have repercussions down the road. I'm, in some ways, actually, this is a very good audience to, to convey that point, because I think you know, there are a lot of young people out there who might want jobs at RAND or with the State Department who might have second thoughts about whether to go to certain political rallies um, or participate in political movements if they want a security clearance down the line. And I think that that's a, a profound problem. And I think one of, to go back to the oversight, there's a legal issue with the oversight by the courts, in particular of surveillance problems because of a, a doctrine of standing, which I will not bore you with in great detail, but just to say that there's a doctrine that says you can't challenge a program unless you can prove you've been harmed by it and your own subjective reaction to the existence of the program is not enough. You have to prove that you've actually been targeted um, by it. Well, nobody can prove that they've been targeted by secret surveillance programs. So lawsuits that the ACLU has brought to challenge uh, the various warrantless wiretapping programs have failed. They've been thrown out by the Supreme Court and by lower courts because they say, although this program exists, and yes, we understand you're a journalist and you may be chilled from speaking with sources because in the Middle East because you have a reasonable belief uh, that you're being monitored. Um, you can't prove that you're actually being monitored, and so we're not going to provide, we're not going to take the case. And that takes the court out of the oversight picture, which is a real problem. So, so one reaction to some of that is um, some of the concerns you discussed about maybe people being affected by uh, uh, awareness of surveillance not choosing to do other things. Isn't that already happening? You hear news reports, uh, news stories about uh, employers looking at Facebook sites. Uh, I wrote an email on Gmail the other day, and based on what I wrote, it asked me whether I wanted to uh, put something in my calendar. It was already looking at, at the content of my language. So with changes in technology, what's the fuss about? Yeah, this is sort of an open question if anyone would like to respond. <laughs> I think maybe. All right. Well, I think, I, I think that it's in, uh, uh, first that these types of dialogues are very important uh, because ultimately these discussions are the things that, uh, at least in part, our elected officials consider uh, when they uh, decide uh, to make adjustments in our laws. And oftentimes that's driven, obviously, by technology uh, changes and things that change the, the landscape uh, of the laws uh, that were uh, enacted when those things didn't exist, and that's certainly very important. <laughs> but to get back to the point on, uh, on political groups, for example. So in a scenario where we have uh, a situation where we have a predicated investigation, articulable facts that indicate that there is either a violation of federal law has occurred or will occur, and it's determined that the people involved are either a political candidate, a politician, belong to a political organization or involved with a political organization. That actually steps up the oversight within the organization as well as outside the organization in the conduct of that investigation because we recognize the effect that that might have in chilling people's involvement in political activity. So it gets even more oversight and scrutiny than it would if that identical situation existed and there wasn't a political entity or an individual involved in politics involved in that particular act. 
So we take that into consideration as well when we look at the oversight that's applied to the organization. We recognize that there are sensitive circumstances that we have to take into consideration and view differently than we would other circumstances that don't have those dimensions involved. Um, I, I think two quick points. I'll respond to that briefly and just say I, I recognize that's, that framework is there within the FBI. I mean, I think it's, it's, it is a very internal guidance structure. And I'm not sure how widely it's applied beyond high-profile leaders. I mean, there are lots. Political activity is a very broad, uh, broad definition. Could, capable of broad definition, right? And so, yes, if you're investigating Martin Luther King, probably the FBI is going to go through its heightened uh, procedures, but maybe not for the, the no, actually on the ground with any political organization, right? Yes. Um, with respect to the technology question, I mean, there are a couple of things. First of all, obviously, we're all generating a lot more data in this digital age than we were before. Whether it's emails or all of your cell phones that are pinging towers and sending out information about your location. Um, and there are some ramifications to that, some of which are small fixes and some of which are big fixes. I mean, there's something called the third party doctrine in law uh, that basically says if you're sharing information uh, with some third party, like a bank uh, or your cell phone provider, it's no longer, you no longer have an expectation of privacy in it, at least under the, with respect to the Fourth Amendment. And that, you know, that is a doctrine that was developed in the 60s, um, and it may not ring true today, that we may not feel that we have, maybe then we felt we didn't have an expectation of privacy in data we were sharing, but today, maybe that's different when all of our communications, um, our location every moment is being tracked by corporations. But then I think there's also a real question about whether we need to shift our our view of what's private with respect to corporations. I mean, we can't really have very different standard for for corporations and for the government. We can't ask that the police and the FBI get warrants for information that they could buy from a data aggregator, right? Um, and so I think part of what we may need to rethink is, is the relationship that we have to our data and, and whether there, there is some privacy that we feel in our data, that we have in our data some expectation of privacy even when it resides with a pr private corporation and, and changing that framework as well. Um, I've wondered why I'm, I'm here and I finally figured out <laughs> that what it is is to make sure that these guys don't get too close to each other. Uh -huh. So, but uh, not that I'm going to give you uh, anything that really is more trenchant than what they're saying on domestic affairs because I don't, as a foreign service officer retired, I don't generally interfere in the internal affairs of the United States. Uh, I, save, <laughs> I save that for other countries. But, <laughs> but uh, just a couple of things about the context, and I'm not trying to say that the context, contextual uh, boundaries that uh, my colleagues are speaking about are limited in the sense that these are the big major questions. But let's remember that the threat from 9-11 didn't come from the inside the United States and that the uh, means by which people are doing their best, using their best judgment, following the rules as best they can, and the reason that people are being critical about the way this is done is there is a very real threat outside of the United States, one that is not always playing by the same rules, I guess you would say, that we do. So while I'm not critical of the need to have the debate on that level, I do ask that we open up a dimension of taking into account what foreigners think and the rules that foreigners play by. 
the Germans, for various historical reasons, have a real problem with, with secrecy. The Datenschutz laws, for historical reasons, are very understandable, make them very, very concerned when they find out that in a what we think is a sincere effort to sift through a lot of this data, you go through uh, um, the, uh, the material in Germany that Germans didn't know about. Similarly, the French. Sim- the French do lots of naughty things. So there's always things to find in France, you know. And, and then, you know, Brazil even has, has talked about this. What I'm getting at is if you are going to have a means of coming to an agreement on this, we must not limit it to our domestic issues, whether they're legal, whether they're moral, or whether they're practical. It has to have an international dimension because it's not just all about us. It's about other people thinking in other ways. Many of the ways they think actually cause the attack we want to understand that better. That's why the need is there for intelligence. And yet, by the rules that we play by, and we're the most powerful country in, in, in the world, by the rules we play by, it's important that we make our situation clear, but not ignore the fact that there are different cultures and different historical backgrounds that I think are an intrinsic part of this. We're not used to bringing that in. We're not used to talking about things. We're talking about the denial of, of, uh, of due process to American citizens. Well, we're also talking about the denial of due process to people who aren't Americans. What does our Constitution say about that? Not much. Doesn't mean our Constitution's wrong, but in a practical sense, uh, it would be a mistake not to think about the impact these kinds of things have around the world. So while that doesn't solve any of these problems, probably makes it even more difficult, I wanted to throw that in. I'd like to... I'd actually like to follow that up, Cameron, because you, you did nicely turn, broaden the discussion a bit. And coming back to the starting point where we talked about there's a threat we face, the revelation, uh, revelations about uh, surveillance did start a discussion, but did they also change anything about our ability to, uh, to conduct foreign policy or <coughs> to understand what the threats we face are? I, th- I think so, and I think one of the salutary lessons of the last uh, 10 to 15 years is uh, we, are, we are not doing this in a vacuum. We're not only doing this, uh, the, the, the intelligence work that we do around the world and the law enforcement cooperation uh, for all that you may read in the, in the newspapers about the difficulties with foreign countries. It's extraordinary, the, the cooperation we have with other countries in law enforcement, in intelligence. Uh, I would like to see a better understanding of that in the public sphere. That is to say that people understand that like-minded people can agree on certain precepts, whether in our case they're constitutional precepts or in other cases they're traditions, etc. So that it's understood that there are certain rules that we need to follow together. I think that that cooperation, that's, that's an, un, an unsung story, an untold story that is quite, quite positive. On the other hand, if we simply rely on, um, on uh, the uncritical use of data, not taking into account the fact that the world is a very complex place, we're going to make enormous mistakes. We're going to make the kind of mistakes that you make when you don't understand a foreign culture and therefore can't apply the intelligence to the way people act. That is something that as we work to uh, support our law enforcement officials and what they're doing, I think we also need to think about the way intelligence is organized and the way that intelligence sharing works. Finally, I would add that in certain, in certain parts of the world, like Pakistan, um, where our efforts to try to work against terrorism are poorly understood, we do ourselves a disservice 
if we rely too much on secrecy. That is to say, um, giving you a very general account, we have a program that's known as the drone program in that part of the world, and it's a secret program, but it's something that you read about on the front page of the New York Times. <laughs> and uh, the sad part of that is, there are those of us who've worked in the government who think that that is a program that in many ways can have, can be a humane program. Uh, drones are very accurate weapons, and if, if used judiciously, they can actually lead to a less savage way of fighting a very real war. If the public understands this correctly, if the governments are able to share that information in the right way, I think our chances of building not only a national consensus, but an international consensus that's based on an understanding of what this weapon can be used for is much greater. So the secrecy in some cases has held us back. Well, as you can see, there's many dimensions to this problem. And uh, with the expertise here, we could go on discussing this amongst ourselves for quite a long time, but the goal here is to have a discussion. So at this point, I'd like to open it up for discussions from the floor, and I think some of my colleagues have microphones. So if you raise your hand, they'll bring you a microphone. And uh uh, Thank you for a fascinating conversation. Uh, Mr. Ambassador, I have two questions for you. The first is, how have our, um, I guess, focusing on foreign leaders and their communications uh, impacted our ability to work with them in trying to get uh, some more uh, security taken care of? And is that the fault of Edward Snowden for releasing that information or the fault of the U.S. for just being so ham-handed about it? And the other question I have is... Let me start with that one, certainly, because I'll forget it if I don't. One of the things that I think all of our colleagues are talking about, my colleagues are talking about in the domestic areas, where are the limits of trust and where are the limits of judgment? These are notoriously hard things to measure. But trust and judgment, is, it's all about should you raid this place? Is it right to do that? Does the law allow you to? That was a good idea. And you have powers that you can use should you use them, that kind of thing. So that question that you come up to is it is it a you know is is what has happened has that been a uh, has it that hurt us yes I mean when you when you are dealing with foreign governments and they are surprised by what you do that's just basic diplomacy 101 you try to build trust with countries you're with and if you don't build trust it's just that much harder to do things does it mean that you should not have surveillance that's something perhaps for, we, for us and our friends to discuss because, believe me, they're not people who don't use surveillance either. But the, the question is how, and how do you do that? How do like-minded people develop that kind of judgment and trust to work together? And when that, when that breaks down, yes, that's a problem. A guy like Snowden, well, remember, there's an old saying that we have, and I hope none of you are journalists <laughs> are here, even in, your, in, in civilian, because we like to say that the difference between a diplomat and a journalist is that a, a diplomat knows many things he doesn't say, and a journalist says many things he doesn't know. Right? Um, and uh, aside from trying to be cute, what we're trying to say is, is it wrong not to say everything? That is to say, if I'm in a sensitive conversation overseas as a diplomat, and I'm told something in confidence, and that, that message in getting out puts the person's life in danger, and believe me, Believe me, that has happened to me. When a guy like Bradley Manning or a guy like Snowden decides he's going to put that in public, someone has spoken to me in confidence, I put that person's life in danger, that person has trusted me. 
They've broken down trust. So talking about who's the good guys and the bad guys here is a very tricky thing. And, and, and I would only say that, you know, I'm not going to come down one way or the other because as a diplomat, I don't do that. <laughs> but, 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 but I would urge you to look at both sides of this, that making someone into a hero or a total villain, this is a very difficult question. And any time you're doing the kind of work that our colleagues in law enforcement are doing, for them simply to blast out totally in public without any secrecy, uh, that can be a violation of the privacy that people had in talking to them about what happened. You see what I mean? It's, it's, it's an ambiguous problem, and that's why it's so difficult. And the only way you can, you can deal, deal with it is in some sort of, uh, I think, um, question of, of a scale of judgment. So I'm sorry I cut you off on your so question. Let's go for a second question on this side. Yeah, um, yeah I'm, I'd like a definition of privacy today from each of you. Um, given the data that floats around and given the notion that the government is collecting metadata, which presumably means they're not looking at intent, they're just looking at where the stuff is and where it came from, what is privacy as you see it today? And do we have a right to it? Peter, why don't you start sure. with this? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have a very quick and totally useless definition. Um, the, I mean, I think privacy is, is information that you expect not to, reasonably expect not to be shared with some section of the population, right? And I think it can be uh, uh, situational, and it can, you can have privacy vis-a-vis -vis some individuals, but not everybody. You know, you may go to the gym and change in front of uh, the people who are in the locker room, but you don't expect a video of you changing to be, you know, posted on the internet, right? Um, and so I think that there's a lot of, I mean, the, the, the trouble is in the definition of, of what you don't, re what is reasonable to expect not to be shared with whom, and that's a conversation that I think is really one we have to have as a society, right? It's all about a societal expectation, both, and they're troubling both descriptive aspects, what, what, what we're not what we don't share with others, and then sort of normative aspects. I mean, I think one of the things that this the technology age has done is um, mil have is have millions of people go online and inadvertently share data that they d they don't reasonably they they think is they're not sharing with other people, but everybody's doing it, right? And so there's a question of, you know, is privacy what we're actually doing or what everybody thinks we should be doing? And I, I well, I give others panelists just a time to think whether they want to ask. I, I'll just add another aspect of this that I've seen in some of our research here at RAND. Uh, that was motivated by a, a fairly seminal court case on this topic where a warrant was uh, given for a drug bust based on monitoring of the house with an infrared camera that showed that there was more energy coming out of that house than you'd expect and it turned out there were grow lights in the house. But should there be an expectation of privacy of not being able to see heat coming off a house with a camera? And I think it just highlights that as technology advances, our, our expectations of that might change. Uh, should we move? Does anyone want to or move to another question? Over to you. Well, I think uh, to, to your point uh, that uh, privacy is defined uh, from a uh, law enforcement perspective is defined uh, by not only law uh, uh, but uh, case law and uh, decisions made uh, by the courts, uh, in particular the Supreme Court, for which then we make adjustments. 
in a more practical sense, um, when we uh, swear an oath, obviously, to not only protect and defend the Constitution, we do so with an acknowledgement that it contains the civil liberties and along with that, a privacy responsibility uh, that we have. So we have to apply uh, the, the, the responsibility to maintain privacy uh, s- strictly within keeping uh, with applicable laws, but also in understanding that the main responsibility in, from our law enforcement perspective and, and essentially our uh, domestic intelligence responsibilities, uh, which are also part of the FBI's mandate, um, is that we do, though, do so uh, in consideration of the individual uh, that is being looked at. Because in the end, what we're looking for every day is simply the truth constrained by not only the applicable laws that we're allowed to operate in, but a recognition that we have a responsibility to protect civil liberties and privacy. And that constraint drives the decision-making of our agents Formally through laws, yes, but informally in their understanding that the truth here may be innocence, exoneration. And this individual uh, uh, that we're looking at uh, deserves not to be affected by this investigation if we determine that the truth uh, indicates that this individual has done nothing wrong. Uh, that's very important. We see that as a central to our responsibilities, which is why we conduct our investigations uh, as we do making sure that in the end, if it turns out uh, that the truth took us to a different place, other people weren't damaged by it. We have a Over question here, right? Yes, there seems to be a horrible, what I'm calling a, uh, a cost associated with some of the revelations that have come out recently. The United States's reputation has just taken a huge beating whether it be in Brazil, where they're talking about uh, uh, changing their email system, or France and other people in the European Union are talking about not sending data to the United States. There's a downside to the revelations about everything that we've been doing by vacuuming, vacuuming up all this data. Did anyone ever consider that if this stuff became public knowledge, that we would be in deep, deep, deep trouble with our allies. We're also enabling our enemies. Uh, Chinese telecommunications vendors are now saying, you should consider using our equipment because it's not bugged by the NSA. (laughs) No, this is happening now. It's not being reported, but it's it's a field I'm interested in. So what about the the cost to our our, our, our reputation and the consideration that maybe even if we can do some things, we shouldn't do some things. Well, let me take a, a stab at that one. I think that there is a tendency to think that somehow, and, and I'm not from the intelligence uh, community uh, as a diplomat, but I worked with many people who were. I think there's a tendency to think that somehow, because this has happened, and it has done damage, I agree with you, um, that it was somehow uh, something that people thought about and didn't think was important. And I think one of the problems that we have to wrestle with is there's a, a kind of an epistemological crisis here. There's a problem that when you are doing very difficult uh, analysis to try to find very bad people and you have masses of data, I, I think a lot of people put their head down and just work at it. 
And that leads to that other question, well, who's watching the people who are doing it? Who is making the policy decisions for those people? But to assume that we somehow thought about there was something implied in the question, who didn't anybody think about this? People may have, but there's something intrinsic to this operation that makes people who are working on it simply put, put their nose to the grindstone and do it. And what I think is necessary from a foreign policy point of view is that we recognize, and we're maybe learning this the hard way, but I think we are learning this. We're, we recognize that this has to be discussed at a policy level with at least our friends around the world so that it's a question of, yes, this is very hard work that doesn't always lend itself to reflection because it's so massive. Uh, and yet it has to be uh, one of the elements that we get used to putting on the agenda for the US-EU summits, for the US, the Asia-Pacific summits, for the larger meetings that we have. And I don't see that so much as a, a wicked conspiracy to dupe the Brazilians. I don't think it has turned out well, but I, I tend to see that this is the result of this massive new kind of problem that we haven't dealt with, we haven't caught up with it in the policy world. The, the, the silver lining here is I think we've learned the hard way and I think we're going to have to talk with the Brazilians and the French and everyone else about this now. Uh, they're not going to not want to talk about this. May I just preface my remarks to you, Cameron? As an Amherst man, the first time I spent a weekend at Pomona, I fell in love with the school and ever since then, I've called it the Amherst of the West. <laughs> now, my question is, I'm a cover-to-cover -cover reader of the Wall Street Journal since college days, and at least once a week, I read devastating reports that the drains are not, uh, the dones, drones are not doing what you suggested, incredibly accurate, that the Wall Street Journal is pointing out regularly the disastrous side effects of civilian killing. So how do you reconcile these two points of view? Um, since I don't especially want to go to jail, I'm not going to tell you as much as you would like to hear. <laughs> but I can say to you that I believe there are many wild uh, accounts that have been uh, made, uh, claims that have been made about uh, the use of drones in Pakistan, or say in Yemen, but I'll speak of Pakistan, where they say that there is um, a numbers bandied about, about civilians who are killed. My experience is that those numbers are grossly exaggerated, and when I called for greater openness, the reason I call for greater openness is that I believe that we actually have a better story to tell than we are allowed to tell because of the privacy uh, of, of this, the privacy, the secretness of this program. Uh, I'm not at liberty to talk to you about numbers. But the fact is, I believe that if we would figure out a way to be more forthcoming with the public in the United States and with the public in Pakistan, and with pesky British NGOs, you know, we would actually be able to make a case that might redound to the benefit. At the very least, rather than having speculation that's ideologically motivated, anti-American speculation saying that there are thousands and thousands of people dying, uh, you know, wildly pro-American saying that there are zero people dying, you know, the truth is somewhere in between, and it would be wise for us, I think, to have less secrecy so we could make those points. Thank you. We have a question in the center. Um, earlier, Mr. Bibring made a reference to the difference between 
intelligence gathering and law enforcement. I understand that we have the Constitution which protects us from essentially the government going on a fishing expedition looking for crimes that there was no prior evidence of. Uh, my question is, where is, how can we practicably draw a distinction between, that, between law enforcement activity and that sort of fishing activity and then national security interests and in gathering information to, pre to prevent threats to national security? I mean, I can start with a civil libertarian's viewpoint, civil rights viewpoint, and uh, open it up. I mean, I think, look, from our, my perspective, it's, it is about uh, particularized suspicion, right? If law enforcement primarily target, targets for investigation individuals because they have a reason to believe that, that they are doing something wrong, um, that is a law enforcement model. And it's a, it's a model that, you know, has worked well to address crime, even very, very serious crime that causes lots of brutality and death um, throughout this country, right? I mean, it, that's the model that, um, that we use to address gangs or organized crime. Um, and what we've seen is, you know, in fact, it has been a shift to that, right? And it's not to, to the other model, to a model of, of broad collection of data, whether it's looking at the NSA or even domestic programs. Um, you know, now the, in Southern California, local jurisdictions are setting up license plate readers everywhere um, so that they can gather locational information, which helps them find stolen cars. But if you talk to them, it's also a, a, an intelligence tool. They want to gather large amounts of information on everybody, um, whether they have reason to believe they've committed a crime or not, so they can go back and look at it um, if it maybe someday helps them commit a crime. Or, or the FBI, um, which is over the last few years changed its internal regulations to allow a new category of, of assessments which don't require any factual predicate, right? So there's been a move um, both at federal and local levels to, to more bulk collection of data. George, do you want to reply? Yeah, and so uh, that's true. Um, uh, post 9-11 there was an acknowledgement and a recognition that we couldn't simply uh, work on uh, discrete matters that are the focus of predicated investigations alone. But there's an expectation that in all matters uh, of threat issues, uh, both criminal and national security, that we look forward in the problem set. And that there is an expectation that the FBI and others prevent uh, bad things from happening before they happen. So then, uh, then the important question to ask is, okay, then how is that done? So that, again, we go back to ensuring that we're protecting the civil liberties and privacy of the American people while we're moving forward to protect the American people not only from national security threats but from criminal threats as well. Uh, so we did, uh, the uh, Attorney General uh, authorized the use of the assessment process. But even the assessment process uh, is intentionally and deliberately limited. For example, uh, it must have an authorized purpose. And an authorized purpose never is, may not be, uh, shall not be, uh, a, an assessment opened uh, based on what's already protected uh, by the First Amendment um, uh, and uh, to ensure that we're not pursuing simply because of religion, uh, because of uh, national origin, uh, because people are out assembling uh, uh, peacefully and freely as they uh, are allowed to uh, uh, by the First Amendment uh, and so forth. 
So it, it makes it very clear that you cannot uh, conduct an assessment if that's your sole reason for doing it. But there are many other appropriate, necessary reasons for doing assessments. And we can even talk about uh, the migration of gangs. So when we're looking at the evolution of the gang problem, and we recognize where it is today, it's the problem that we face today, the question is, is what is it going to look like tomorrow, and what can reasonably, appropriately be done by law enforcement to address that problem of tomorrow today so that we're not then dealing with another big regional, national, and transnational gang tomorrow. And that may mean that uh, in that authorized purpose for which that would be, um, with very clear objectives and trying to define what that next gang might look like and where it might be, uh, they may look at population data that's obviously available open source to determine based on a whole host of factors, including obviously socioeconomic issues, uh, where it might be logical uh, based on historical examples where it might crop up tomorrow and then engage uh, in not only explaining what that problem might be, but then involving uh, many parts uh, of the community and not just the law enforcement dimension and not only recognizing that potential, uh, but then uh, being proactive in our actions to take care of it. And a lot of it has to do with engaging community leaders and informing others of the possibility uh, based on existing conditions that they might have that problem tomorrow. Uh, what can we do together to prevent it? It's good for communities. It's good for law enforcement, obviously, uh, as well, because it, we're not dealing with the next big problem, uh, just waiting for it to happen. In short, there's an expectation that we not simply sit back and wait for the leads to come in, for us then to have articulable facts that allow us to open a predicated investigation that we are mandated um, by uh, our leaders uh, to look forward in problems to do the best that we can uh, to prevent, which of course is uh, never going to be there 100%. We get that. Uh, but to do that uh, every day. Question here to your left. Um, the, the question I have is... Uh, the notions of sovereignty and threat and security have uh, rather evolved over the last 20 or 30 years. So the question that I have is now how does this impact, for instance, the doctrine of right to protect? If we have already set a precedent with UN right to protect interventions beginning with uh, the 1990s, then in some respects General Keith has already said that the NSA and the Cyber Threat Command of the U.S. Army are now indistinguishable. So what's the potential impact on the right to protect, not only with domestic issues, but with foreign issues as well? A classic example would be the Mexican cartels and all the incidences across the Texas, uh, Arizona, and California border, or then even in Syria. You want to start domestic and go foreign, or start foreign and go domestic? What do you guys say? Start. <laughs> foreign and go domestic. So. They would, um, one of the problems on sovereignty is that there's not only the question of secrecy and the question of, of, of legitimacy that are, that are raised, but the actual definition of sovereignty. One of the problems, for example, we had in Pakistan was that in questions where we were violated, this is not entirely on, on data, but when we were uh, accused of violating the sovereignty of Pakistan, for example, to kill Osama bin Laden, um, one of the counter-arguments that was made from our side was that uh, Pakistan in many ways does not control the entire sovereignty of its country. The Pakistani army does not extend its writ to the border with Afghanistan. And one of the reasons that other people who are violating the sovereignty of Pakistan, such as the Taliban, are there is one, that is one of the reasons why America then has to take other, 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 other measures. What I'm getting at is careful 
you've probably studied this much more than I have, but careful about the solidity of sovereignty. It's a very spongy concept in a lot of the countries we're dealing with. You know, okay. So so secondly, the idea of how this uh, has changed over the last uh, 15 years, absolutely this, this question that came out, well, it was most clearly brought out in the National Security Doctrine of 2002, the preemptive uh, doctrine of defense, uh, and has been debated ever since. I, I just don't think, to be honest with you, I don't think we've sorted it out. I don't think we have come up with a clear answer to that question. And so that what happens now is case by case, we evaluate whether these things violate some sort of sovereignty or violate some sort of principle. And so in foreign policy, it is. V- I, I wish I could come up with a better answer, but it's just really messy. And I don't think it's going to get cleaner soon because it's not being discussed in the context you know, there's there's a legal discussion, international law. There's a there's a moral discussion, uh, and there's a practical discussion, keeping America safe. And these things all mix together in a way that is not quite as clear as I think the constitutional and personal debate in the United States. Do you want to comment uh, domestically? Well, I think uh, I'd actually need some help in you reframing the question for me to understand how you would uh, want it an- or addressed on a domestic uh, forum. Um, for instance, any of the cartels that operate along the lines of communication in and out of Texas, um, information to right to protect because of uh, how, for instance, a 45-minute running gun battle in downtown Nuevo Laredo included hand grenades and automatic weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, that type of information, because what we're looking at is that we're connecting the dots. Information is data. Data and information are as intelligence. So in some respects, we're now putting intelligence and security in the lead in terms of what is now considered to be the right to protect. I mean, with the debate here is security or versus privacy. In my mind, we've bridged that already. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, first off, uh, it, we, we work... Collaboratively, cooperatively, obviously, uh, with the United States, uh, with other federal uh, partners, uh, but with state and locals um, every day. Uh, the, the work that we do uh, is uh, obviously um, uh, difficult by design, and that's good uh, because of the, the, obviously our Constitution uh, necessitates that, and we obviously embrace it. Um, but without our state and local partners engaging uh, with us and us engaging with them, uh, we wouldn't be uh, in a position to, to address it even remotely adequately, and when we know that. And that extends then those partnerships uh, to our uh, uh, international partners, uh, which is why we have uh, in position uh, throughout the world in over 60 locations uh, what we call legal attaches. We're really, they're uh, FBI uh, agents. Sometimes we put analysts out there too um, that are out there uh, as FBI employees working with our partners in law enforcement um, to make sure that well, we do everything that we can uh, to not arrive at the situation as described. Uh, but I would suggest that when that is happening on the streets of an American city, even along the border, uh, then that is a local police matter where they have a responsibility to protect the public from harm um, to address that immediate threat. Um, better, however, uh, is to be working collaborating closely with them to prevent that from occurring in the first place because of the relationships that we have, not only through, obviously, the FBI's work, but certainly our, the State Department uh, and other uh, U.S. government employees that populate our embassies worldwide. So uh, we've, I think we've reached the, uh, the hour that we've put aside for this. Uh, it's been a tremendous uh, conversation. I'd like to turn it back over to Greg. 
Before I thank the panel, I think they'll stay around for a bit, so if you have questions. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.